Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Listening to the Losers, The True Nature of War. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 28, 2009. Some parts of the Bible are so gruesome that you wonder why the writers included them in a sacred book. In the Old Testament reading this week from 2 Samuel chapter 1, <coughs> David laments the death of King Saul. Turn back one page in your Bible and you learn why. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 31, The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. With war crimes, turnabout is fair play. In last week's reading, David humiliated the Philistines by beheading Goliath and then taunting the enemy. But now the tables were turned, and the oppressed became the new oppressor. Reading about the mutilation of Saul's corpse reminded me of an interview with Chris Hedges, author of the book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Hedges recalled what he had seen in 20 years as a war correspondent. His war narrative is separated from King Saul's by 3,000 years, but the two accounts are eerily similar. In war, says Hedges, routine death becomes boring. And now I'm quoting. It's why you would go into central Bosnia and see bodies crucified on the sides of barns, or why in El Salvador genitals were stuffed in people's faces. Mutilation, you know, the body is sort of trophy, the body is a kind of performance art. Nailing Saul's beheaded corpse to the wall of a Philistine temple, and the bodies of young soldiers in Bos to Bosnian barns, are horrific reminders of the true nature of war, whether ancient or modern. They belie the sanitized sound bites of embedded reporters or the patriotic propaganda of government spokesmen. So do my lie, dragging dead American soldiers through the streets of Mogadishu, torturing prisoners in Abu Ghraib, hanging the charred bodies of four American soldiers from a bridge over the Euphrates River, and murdering two dozen civilians in Haditha. You might explain these desecrations as rare exceptions committed by deranged individuals, but I think Hedges is right when he characterizes them as, quote, an inevitable consequence of war, end quote. 
They peel back the rhetorical veneer of war to reveal its true nature as what he calls, quote, almost pure sin, end quote. War turns some boys into men, William Sloan Coffin once observed, but it also turns others into animals. To learn what true war is like, says Hedges, listen to the losers. The vanquished are better guides than the victors. And listen to a long quote from Hedges. The losers see through the empty jingoism of those who use the abstract words of glory, honor, and patriotism to mask the cries of the wounded, the senseless killing, war profiteering, and chest-pounding grief. The losers know the lies the victors often do not acknowledge, the lies covered up in a stately war memorial, mythic war narratives filled with stories of courage and comradeship. The losers know the lies that permeate the thick, self-important memoirs by amoral statesmen who make wars but do not know war. The vanquished know the essence of war, death. They grasp that war is necrophilia. They see that war is a state of almost pure sin with its goals of hatred and destruction. They know how war fosters alienation leads inevitably to nihilism, and is a turning away from the sanctity and preservation of life. All other narratives about war too easily fall prey to the allure and seductiveness of violence, as well as the attraction of the godlike power that comes with the license to kill with impunity. In a spiral of violence begetting violence, the oppressed becomes the oppressor, and the losers savor their bitter memories of the past in hopes of revenge in the future. That's why Slobodan Milosevic's war rhetoric reached back to Serbia's humiliation by the Ottomans at the Battle of Kosovo way back in 1389, or why when King David learned of Saul's death, he executed the messenger who brought the news. Instead of waging peace, David lamented the, devise, the demise of Israel's military might. How the mighty have fallen! Oh, how the weapons of war have perished! 2 Samuel 1.27 Some wars are necessary, even unavoidable. For all his passionate opposition to war, Hedges admits that some wars are a moral imperative. The gist of Samantha Power's book, A Problem from Hell, is precisely that. The moral failure of the United States to intervene to stop genocides in places like Bosnia, Rwanda, or Darfur. When my family lived in Moscow from 1991 to 1995, Russian war veterans in their 70s would smile and grab our hands on the sidewalk at a metro station, thanking America for what we did in World War II. We were allies against Hitler, they would say. But war, as a regrettable last resort, 
when every eligible citizen soldier does his or her part, is far different than a unilateral and preemptive use of military force when waged by the proxy of a professional army and as a de facto tool of diplomacy. A growing number of observers have lamented what Andrew Basevich calls the new American militarism. Our military idolatry, Basevich believes, is now so comprehensive and beguiling that it pervades our national consciousness and perverts our national policies. We have normalized war, romanticized military life that formerly was deemed degrading and inhuman. We've measured our national greatness in terms of military superiority and harbored naive, unlimited expectations about how waging war, long considered a tragic last resort that signaled failure, can further our national self-interests. Utilizing a military metaphysic to justify our misguided ambitions to recreate the world in our own image with ideals that we imagine are universal has taken about 30 years to emerge in its present form. And it's a problem not merely of the government or of any one single presidential administration, says Basevich. It's a problem of American society at large. Many of the earliest Christians repudiated the violence of war, military service, and even the state itself. Origin of Alexandria, 185 to 254, perhaps Christianity's greatest early scholar, is representative. In his book Against Celsus, listen to his poem or prayer. And as we, by our prayers, vanquish all the demons that stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this service are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when along with righteous prayers we practice self-denying disciplines and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led astray by them. And none fight better for the king in his role of preserving justice than we do. We do not indeed fight under him, although he demands it, but we fight on his behalf forming a special army of piety by offering our prayers to God. <clears throat> of course, many Romans rightly considered Origen's words seditious because they refused to participate in Rome's cult of imperial worship. Things changed radically when Constantine became emperor and ordered Christian emblems on shields and helmets. But his celebration of war and his exploitation of the faith was not always the status quo, and it need not be so today. And now for further reflection. 
Consider the saying of Tertullian, who was writing about the year 200. What will be God's if all things are Caesar's? What are the implications of the fact that 70 to 90 percent of war deaths are civilians? Would we think differently about militarism if we had compulsory conscription? How do we honor the sacrifices made by our soldiers while dissenting from militaristic ideology? And for further reflection, see the four books, all of which are reviewed at journeywithjesus.net, Chris Hedges' War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, Stephen Kinzer, Overthrow, America's Century of Regime, regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq, Drew Gilpin Faust, This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, and finally, David Livingstone Smith, The Most Dangerous Animal, Human Nature in the Origins of War. For books this week, I review Ethan Rarick, Desperate Passage, The Donner Party's Perilous Journey West, New York, Oxford, 2008, 288 pages. On May the 12th, 1846, George and Tamzine Donner, along with James and Margaret Reed, left Independence, Missouri with a group of 50 wagons and 150 adults for a better life in what they called the Bay of Francisco. They left a little late and brought up the rear of a snaking line of 500 wagons heading to Oregon in California that spring. Loaded with livestock, children, and provisions, and lumbering along at two miles an hour, the 2,000-mile trip typically took about six months. After they crossed the Continental Divide, and turned left to take the Hastings cutoff instead of the tried-and-true path to the right, the travelers coalesced into what eventually became known as the Donner Party. There was nothing remarkable about the Donner Party's sojourn to California, which, by the way, at that time still belonged to Mexico. The first wagon train west left in 1841. The Donners were merely part of an expansionist fever over the next two decades that saw 250,000 people cross the continent. The outcome of their trip, though, and the sensationalist reporting about it, make them some of the most famous and carefully studied of the early pioneers. Only a mile or two from summiting the Sierra Nevada mountain range onto a downward slope just a hundred miles from their destination, a ferocious November snowstorm buried them in a frigid prison. Thanks to the diaries, journals, letters, and memories of the survivors, and later work by historians and archaeologists, Today we have a good idea of exactly what happened to the Donner Party. 
81 people were trapped for four months in snows up to 20 feet deep at an elevation of 6,000 feet. 45 people survived, mainly because of their decision to eat their dogs, boiled rawhide, and even their own dead, and also thanks to the bravery of four separate rescue parties. Initial reports caricatured the Donner Party as ghouls because of their cannibalism, or dupes due to their poor choices and lack of experience. Ethan Rarick rejects both of these interpretations. In his empathetic retelling, the Donners were every man. Quote, the drama of the mundane gone madly wrong, end quote. Today, a national historical landmark, a state park, various memorials, towns, and a lake all commemorate their heroic survival with the Donner name. Interested readers might also enjoy an even newer book by Daniel James Brown, the title The Indifferent Stars Above, The Harrowing Saga of a Donner Party Bride, 2009. Ethan Rarick, Desperate Passage, The Donner Party's Perilous Journey West. For film this week, I review Wendy and Lucy from 2008. Independent filmmaker Kelly Riker takes a tough but tender look at the people in America who are one sickness or one accident away from personal catastrophe. Wendy and her dog Lucy are stranded in a depressing mill town in Oregon after leaving Indiana for a better life in Alaska. She's frugal and resourceful recording her expenditures in a spiral notebook. She sleeps in her car, collects cans and bottles for spare change, and freshens up in gas station bathrooms. Wendy observes to a security guard who's befriended her that you can't get a job without an address or a phone, to which he replies, heck, you can't get an address without an address or a job without a job. It's all rigged. Minor infractions with rule-keeping bureaucrats reap major consequences. When Wendy's 20-year-old car needs a $2,000 repair, we find her in the last scene of the movie hopping a train. But for where? She's a person like many people in America who have no past and no future, and who are going nowhere both literally and figuratively. Even the fate of her dog, Lucy, is not what we expected. Wendy and Lucy, from the year 2008. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by William Butler Yeats, 1865 to 1939. It's a short poem with a simple title, Politics. How can I, that girl standing there, my attention fixed on Roman 
or on Russian or on Spanish politics. Yet here's a traveled man that knows what he talks about, and there's a politician that has both read and thought. And maybe what they say is true of war and war's alarms. But oh, that I were young again and held her in my arms. Politics by William Butler Yeats. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 28, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.